Thanks, Andrew. And thanks, Steph. <coughs> well, let me add my welcome to um, Danny's and Mike's. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm the associate pastor here. And why don't we pray as we prepare to look at God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not remained silent, that you have communicated with us through your word. And we thank you that in it we can meet the Lord Jesus himself. We pray that as we encounter him, uh, you may help us see uh, who he really is and the response that we uh, should have to him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm not a particularly techie person, but in 2012... When my old, non-smart mobile phone finally packed it in, I bit the technology bullet and I bought my first iPhone. And I had that phone for four years. But in those four years, I reckon I used maybe 10% of the functions of that phone. So I made some calls and I sent texts. I used it as a clock and a stopwatch. I consulted Google Maps and I accessed Facebook. That was pretty much it. And one phone upgrade later, I've moved from an iPhone 4 to an iPhone 5. <laughs> That's still pretty much it. And yet I know I'm not alone. I know there are people out there with similar smartphones who use them in a similar way. My dad, for instance, he has got a much newer phone than I do. And all he does on that phone is send texts and make calls. He may as well have a Nokia 5110. And the point is the iPhone is capable of so much more than that. It was intended for so much more than that. I don't know if you've ever seen in any of the footage of when that first came out and Steve Jobs is having those launch things in auditoriums and he's talking about the, the device. His vision for the iPhone is grand. His vision for the phone is that you don't need anything else. This thing can do it all. Communication, work, rest, play. It's all in this one device. And so there's something almost tragically ironic about having something so capable and yet using it, relatively speaking, for such small things. And in the passage before us, we witness a similar dynamic at play. This account features one of the defining miracles associated with Jesus. As Danny said at the beginning, one of his most famous miracles, turning water into wine. If we were to play Family Feud and the category was Things Jesus Did, this would be almost certainly among the top responses. He turned water into wine. And without stretching the iPhone analogy too far, I want to suggest that the way Jesus is engaged with and people relate to him in this passage and the way that Jesus is engaged with and people relate to him even today is not dissimilar to the way that non-techie people like myself and my dad engage with our all-powerful smartphones. Jesus is called upon to change the circumstances of a particular situation, and yet he is capable of so much more. He's able to bring far greater change. Indeed, he has intended to bring far greater change. And so a question that this account poses to us as, as readers of it today is, what realities about Jesus are you happy to accept? What realities about Jesus are you comfortable accepting or put another way what do you come to jesus for maybe you're here and you're a christian believer and you have already come to jesus what do you come to jesus for maybe you're here and you're not yet a christian believer what do you think about coming to jesus for what do you hope you will get from him moral guidance you can get that from jesus 
generally inspiring spirituality? What do you expect him to do for you? Life-improving personal miracles? As we look more closely at this narrative, those are just some of the questions we're invited to consider. So let's do that, let's look more closely, and we'll spend most of our time looking at the first passage that was read by Ness. And you'll see there in verse 1 of chapter 2 that the narrative picks up a few days, just a few days after the events of chapter 1, at a wedding in the small village of Cana. Jesus' mother has been invited, as well as Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus' mother, she seems to have some sort of official role at this wedding, some sort of organizing function. And so she is among the first to learn of the terrible news. The wine has run out. This is nothing short of disastrous. See, wine occupied a special place in the Jewish thought and culture. It was a symbol of joy and celebration. And at, it, at an important cultural event like a wedding... The wine was meant to be provided in abundance. It was expected. And then you add to that the fact that weddings at the time often went for a week, maybe more. So the wine was meant to be in abundance for that entire time. You add to that the fact that this was a shame culture where certain transgressions had social ramifications. And suddenly the bridegroom, who's the host of this whole wedding feast, he is facing significant social fallout from this wine running out. And so Jesus' mother, she communicates this news to her son, verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. And it's, it's unclear exactly what Jesus' mother expects him to do. Does she expect something miraculous? Or just to help out with coming up with a solution? What does appear clear is Jesus' initial reluctance to get involved. Verse 4. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. What sort of response is that? He seems unconcerned, almost to the point of disrespect. Is he being? Is that what's going on here? Well, though initially rebuffed, Jesus' mother nevertheless instructs the servants, do whatever he tells you to. She does trust that her son will act in some way, help the situation to solve the present crisis and so he does and standing nearby these six jars they're used john tells us for jewish purification for cleansing rituals and we're told they hold between 20 and 30 gallons that's between 75 and 115 liters thereabouts so they're big jars they hold a lot of water and jesus instructs the servants fill the jars up and they do right to the brim and once they've done that jesus gives them one final instruction He says, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. The chief servant was a bit like the maitre d' at a restaurant in charge of the service of food in and out and the flow of the catering. And who knows what the servants are thinking at this moment? Who knows what they've been thinking throughout the whole jar-filling process? But they have been instructed by Jesus' mother to do whatever he tells them to do. And so they do. They take some and bring it to the chief servant and when the chief servant takes the cup or the serving ladle and drinks its contents he is shocked and he's confused at the quality of the wine that he is drinking but in that instant you can imagine the shock and confusion of the servants at the presence of the wine that the chief servant is drinking that there is any wine to drink at all and john doesn't go into detail about exactly how and when This transformation took place. 
Was it after they finished filling the jars and before they took it to the chief servant? Was it as they ladled it out and gave it to him? Was it just before it touched his lips? John doesn't go into those details. But what he does make clear is that water became wine. And make no mistake, John isn't confused about this. He's not He's not suggesting some more mundane explanation. This isn't like a magician with a card trick. You know, like he's got an ace of spades in his hand and then, hey, presto, it's a nine of hearts. And you see that change and you think, I have no explanation for why that ace of spades is now a nine of hearts except that the card changed. And yet you know, you know that in actuality it didn't happen. It didn't really change. It's just been, it's just been some misdirection. It's just been a sleight of hand. That is not what is going on here. The fluid that was once ordinary water has, under Jesus' directions, changed molecular structure to become the grape-based alcoholic beverage known as wine. And John tells us that this happened in an instant. And without Jesus having anything to do with the process other than directing it with his words. And so this reminds us who we're talking about here. This Jesus, this rabbi at a village wedding, is the Word become flesh. The creator of all that is, seen and unseen. Remember John's prologue, where we began. Who commanded the earth to bring forth plants, plants like the grapevine. And in the same way that he as creator didn't take any time to create the grapevine, we're told he just spoke. Well, so... He doesn't take any time to transform ordinary water into wine. He just instructs the servants. He just speaks, and it happens. And it's not just any wine, is it? When the chief servant drinks it, he's flabbergasted that this superior wine is only appearing now. Surely he, the chief servant, would have known if there was this extra special wine just sitting around. Where's it come from? He has no idea. But the servants do. The servants have an idea, because shocked and confused as they undoubtedly are in this moment, they know because they have just spent probably up to an hour filling jars full of water. And so even if they don't know how a miracle has taken place, they're aware that a miracle has taken place, and they know who's responsible. But with his limited knowledge, the chief servant He comes to the only possible conclusion and he calls the bridegroom over and he praises him for his innovative and and generous approach, leaving such good wine to later in the wedding so people can enjoy good wine longer throughout the celebration. And we don't know how much the bridegroom knows about the wine situation, but he is officially the host of the wedding feast. He was likely one of the first people to be made aware that the wine had run out. And so you can imagine in this moment the deep relief that he is feeling, the disgrace and shame has been averted. It's been replaced instead by praise and acclaim. And John concludes his account in verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there it is in Cana, a small village far from Jerusalem, witnessed by only a handful of people, is where and how Jesus chooses first to display his glory. In terms of a ministry launch, it's underwhelming. In terms of exposure, it's at best best a semi-public display. 
And yet it's also an intentional display by Jesus. It's the first of the greater things that he promised Nathaniel that Nathaniel would see. We didn't spend much time there last week, but at the very end of chapter 1, you see him promise to Nathaniel after he's revealed his supernatural knowledge that he saw Nathaniel before Nathaniel even met him under the fig tree. And Nathaniel is so impressed with him and he says, you will see greater things than this. This is a sign of his glory, the glory that John, one of the disciples, the writer of this gospel, told us about in his prologue in verse 14, that he and the other disciples observed the glory of the one and only Son from the Father. And so the narrative ends. The wedding presumably continues without further incident. And when it's over, Jesus and his family and his disciples, they leave Cana for Capernaum before eventually heading on to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's a well-known story. But what is, what is it about the story that means something to us today? Well, there are realities embedded into this story that we need to come to terms with if we are to understand who Jesus is and who God is where we stand with him and how we ought to respond to him. And there are four realities that I want to bring to our attention that this this narrative uh, shows us. The first thing is that Jesus has glory. Jesus has glory. Jesus has inherent glory. See, Jesus does things that only God can do, like turning water into wine, because we're told Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God and because he has inherent glory, then, then he deserves our praise and our honour and our worship just for that. But, but, we're told even the angels in heaven praise him for that. If that is the only reason we as humans were to worship him, because of that aspect of his glory, then we will have missed the point, much like even Jesus' mother did. We will have missed the point of why Jesus had to come in the first place. It's why Jesus responds to her the way he does. My hour has not yet come. He's not being disrespectful or disinterested in the needs of her hour. The wine has run out. But he's, re- he's reminding her that he has a mission beyond solving the day-to-day problems that people encounter. See, in John's Gospel, Jesus' hour refers to the moment at which God is fully glorified in him. And that will be his death. His death for sin on behalf of the world. On behalf of all people. And so the glory that Jesus pursues here is not not a temporary glory associated with this miraculous act, as glorious as that is. No, it's an eternal glory. An eternal glory that is inextricably linked to the eternal life that he would selflessly achieve for sinners at the cross. A glory that springs from the very essence of God's character, abundantly loving, perfectly just, boundlessly merciful. And so by all means, marvel at Jesus' divine ability to change water into wine. By all means, allow that to inform and to encourage your belief in Jesus. But as one for whom Jesus died and shed blood, don't let just that form the substance of your belief in him. His death and resurrection on your behalf. Let that be what you place your ultimate trust in. So Jesus has glory and it is tied to the cross. The second reality is that Jesus invites belief. 
By doing this, Jesus invites belief. We're not truly acknowledging Jesus' glory unless we respond in faith. It's not enough just to admire Jesus for his teaching, insightful and profound as that is, or for his miracles, as incredible as they are. John tells us that in response to this display of glory, in response to this first sign, what did the disciples do? They believed in Jesus. And that is not something just to skim over. Remember, John has written this gospel with a purpose and Mike in his first sermon in this series drew our attention to that right at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He writes, These signs were written so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which we saw last week. Belief in Jesus as Messiah is the goal of the miracle. It's why John prefers to call it a sign rather than just a miracle. It is not just a naked display of power for the sake of demonstrating how powerful Jesus is. It has a point. It's a sign to point people not just to Jesus, but to faith in Jesus. So Jesus invites belief by performing this miracle. Or we could say that actually Jesus, Jesus expects belief. Because once you see for him, for who he is, well, what alternative is there? So that's the second reality. Jesus invites belief. Thirdly, the third reality is that Jesus meets need. He meets need. This reminds us that Jesus does actually meet day-to-day need. Even though his mother comes to him and he initially kind of holds off helping out, in the end, eventually, he does fix the problem and he helps the wedding hosts out of a jam. And that means that for those of us today whose faith is in the Lord Jesus... It's okay for us to ask him to meet our more day-to-day needs, to fix the problems that we face. We can ask him that. Jesus is risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He continues to rule the world. So bring problems to him knowing that he is powerful enough and that he desires to help us. Yes, Jesus' ultimate desire is that we trust in him as the one who has met our biggest need, that our sins be forgiven. But it's not inappropriate to pray that Jesus would heal someone's sickness or provide you with the work that you need or mend a broken relationship. It doesn't mean that we should expect Jesus to intervene miraculously to meet these needs or always to meet them in the way that we expect them to be met. But this miracle reminds us that Jesus is not disinterested in our day-to-day concerns, that he is compassionate. And that means that as, as a church of people saved by Jesus, living for Jesus, we shouldn't be interested, we shouldn't, sorry, be disinterested in meeting people's day-to-day needs. It's why here at Minchinbury we, we do things like partner with Anglicare in the Food Van Initiative or Anglican Aid, or Compassion. It's why we help people get in touch with the services they need, or if someone's had a baby, organise a meal roster, or if they're returning from an operation or something. All manner of tangible expressions of love and care, because Jesus meets need, and so should we. And finally, the fourth and final reality Jesus brings change. This is perhaps the most significant reality that this miracle compels us to accept, is that when Jesus acts, he brings about change. 
it's interesting, considering the supernatural power Jesus clearly displays, this miracle could have happened quite differently. I mean, why did he use water at all? Surely Jesus could just make the wine appear. If he can turn water into wine, surely he can just make wine appear. But he doesn't. Surely he could have said, see those six jars over there? Just go over to them and you will find them full of wine. But he doesn't. Instead, he has servants fill them up with water, a labour-intensive enterprise. And those jars, those Jewish ceremonial purification jars, are filled with water and he proceeds to change that into wine. Why? Because what Jesus wants to signify most in meeting this need is that he has come to bring about change. And while we want to be careful not to allegorize Jesus' miracle here, you know, we are the water that becomes wine, we do see this theme of change from one state to another, from old to new. We do see this unfold with particular clarity in these early chapters of John's Gospel, particularly this chapter, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. And as Andrew read for us, later in this chapter, Jesus passionately cleanses the temple an act that is generally considered to be his second sign that John records. And in so doing, he announces that the whole temple system is about to change, that he himself is the temple, that he himself is the place of sacrifice, that he himself will cleanse people so they can properly encounter God. It's surely why in performing his first sign, Jesus uses these purification jars. It's not just that they were at hand, that they were handy, The wedding miracle is an acted parable about the change that Jesus had come to bring to the Jewish religion, to the way Jewish people engaged with and related to God, and the way, ultimately, that all people would have to come to and engage with and relate to God. And of course, that change of how we engage with and relate to God ultimately takes place not in some external ritualistic aspect of our person, but in our hearts in the heart of every believer who comes to Jesus. And if that is you in this room, well, for some of you, that may have been a really dramatic experience. Maybe from a life which expressed opposition to God in the most overt and dramatic ways possible. Maybe in your lifestyle, maybe in, your, in the hostility of your belief or thinking towards God. And you can testify to how seemingly overnight the Holy Spirit changed you. And you now live with Jesus as your Lord and your belief and your thinking and your lifestyle could not be further from what they once were. Dramatic change. For others of us who follow Jesus, that change may appear more subtle. But there was still a time when we didn't live with Jesus as our Lord and our preoccupation for the concerns of this world meant that In every way, we lived every much in opposition to God. And then there came a time when we did start living with Jesus as our Lord. And if that is you, I'd invite you to reflect back over the time since that happened. Maybe that was only one year ago. Maybe it was five years ago, maybe 25, maybe 55 years ago. But I imagine you will notice change. Change in your priorities, change in your ambitions, change in your attitudes towards sinful thinking and behaviour change to the way you approach relationships. 
is because Jesus brings change. So four realities. Jesus has glory. And it's tied to the cross. Jesus invites belief. Jesus meets need. He is compassionate and knows what we need. And Jesus brings change. So what realities about Jesus are you happy accepting? Are you comfortable accepting? What do you come to Jesus for? What are you thinking about coming to Jesus for? What do you hope? What do you expect to to get from him? What do you expect him to do for you? As we watch this now famous miracle unfold, we see people encountering and interacting with Jesus who at the time knew so little about him, even his own mother. And through this first sign, we get to see that Jesus chooses to reveal himself as one who is more than just a helper, more than just a dutiful son, more than just a compassionate dinner guest, more than just a divinely powerful individual. He is the one who alone can bring and has brought the ultimate and lasting change that this world so desperately needs, whether it recognizes it or not. So come to him for that and be thankful. Amen.